You are listening to the podcast of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW exists to promote the Bible's teaching on men, women, and marriage. You can learn more at cbmw.org. The Nashville Statement is a confessional document released by CBMW in 2017. Since its release, the Nashville Statement has been signed by over 25,000 evangelical pastors, scholars, and leaders, as well as adopted and affirmed by evangelical churches and institutions across the world. In this podcast series, we are walking through each of the 14 articles of the Nashville Statement as we discuss the statement's biblical basis and ethical implications with Denny, who is one of the statement's principal authors. Today, we are tackling Article 1. I'm Colin Smothers, Executive Director of CBMW. And I am Denny Burke. I'm the President of CBMW. All right, so we're going to continue our series through the Nashville Statement. We're going to start with Article 1, but just a quick framing question, Denny. This statement is organized around affirmations and denials. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, there's a there's a backstory to it. So when we first started with the idea of the Nashville Statement, I was the one working on the initial drafts of it. And I came up with a draft that was pretty much just straight prose, uh, similar content to what you see now in the, the Nashville Statement. But it was, like I said, an early draft, and that thing got worked over by a lot of people. But the first... Two people I sent it to were Albert Moeller and John Piper. And both of them took a look at my draft and basically replied with, try again. <laughs> um, there, there were some substantive things that we wanted to hammer out, I remember. And, but one thing that Dr. Moeller was uh, really helpful on was that he suggested this would rhetorically probably have a lot more uh, power to it if you could state this in the, in the form of affirmations and denials. And that, there's precedent for that. You see that in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Um, I think the T4G um, uh, statement had something like that. So there have been uh, lots of other statements that have, that have used affirmations and denials. And I think it's a way that provides a certain kind of clarity, what you do mean, what you don't mean. And so that's why we um, that's that's how that uh, format initially came about, and we stuck with it after I got that advice, and um, so and I think it served us well. So Article One is about marriage, and we'll come back to why that's important that we start with marriage, the positive picture. But let me read Article One, the affirmation, and Denny, uh, you go ahead and give us an exposition of it. It says we affirm that God has designed marriage to be a covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife and is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. Yeah, the thing that's really important about this definition of marriage is that it's it's based on the purpose for the marital union. So it's defined by what, to put it in the theological term or the ethical term, it's teleological. It's, It's telling us what the goods of marriage are, what marriage is ordered to. So it's designed to be something. So and, and the person who designed it is God. So we're not free to redesign that. But God designed marriage to be uh, several things listed here, covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman. So the covenantal aspect is just the fact that when you open up the Bible in Genesis 1, you see this language of marriage being, for this cause, one man, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This leaving and cleaving language is covenantal language in the, in the Old Testament. And it's, it's the marriage, 
the very first marriage and very every marriage afterward is therefore a covenant. And it's a covenant that God stands, uh, bears witness to. So when you come to Matthew 19, you see Jesus saying, not what man has joined together, let no person separate. He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Which means that this male and female union in a covenant of marriage is something that God has joined together and it's on his terms. And so a covenant, very simply spoken, is it's a, it's a binding relationship between two people um, based on promises that they've made to each other. You can have covenants in lot, lots of different contexts, but a marital covenant is specifically a, a, a binding merit, uh, mon- monogamous sexual relationship. Can I ask you something right there? Yeah. What's the difference between a contract and a covenant then? Because that's what uh, the statement sort of juxtaposes. Well, a, a contract is, typically we think of contracts as human-made and you've got human beings who determine the terms of the contract. Those terms can be renegotiated according to the needs of the moment, according to you know changes in the relationship, that kind of a thing. So they're temporary. They're also human constructed. When we think about a biblical covenant, it's God who dictates the terms of these coven- of the covenant, and then they're unchangeable. You're not free to renegotiate this. Okay, yeah, I'm going to make a promise to you up front that I'm going to have and to hold from this day forward, forsaking all others. And then midway through it, you come back and say, let's renegotiate this. Let's not have and to hold from this day forward. Let's, um, let's, let's not forsake all others. Let's f- f- forsake most others except this one other person that I like. You can't come back and renegotiate the, the norms of the contract because those are set by God. They're permanent. That makes sense. So covenantal sexual, why is it important to say that marriage is a sexual union? Well, this is the one of the distinguishing marks of, of the marriage covenant. It's fundamentally based on the one flesh union of the man and the woman. That, too, goes all the way back to Genesis 1. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, to the, and the two shall become one flesh, right? They're going to cleave to each other and become one flesh. Now, with Adam and Eve, they were one flesh right out of the box because Eve is taken from Adam's side, and he looks at her and he says, oh, look, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha because she was taken from the Ish. You know, she's a woman because she's taken from from the man. So they're right out of the box, one flesh, because she's made from his side. But Moses adds this little editorial comment there that I keep quoting in Genesis 2.24, because of this one flesh relation at the first marriage, every, every marriage after that is going to be a one flesh relation. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But all of those subsequent marriages aren't, the one flesh union's not affected by women constantly being made from men's side. The the, the one flesh union is affected through sexual union. And so you can have promises, but if you don't have the conjugal union of a man and a woman, you don't yet have a fully completed marriage covenant. And so we're not free to redefine this um, sexual relationship that's at the heart of the covenant. You can't substitute it with like, okay, we both, we bond over tennis playing or, you know, we bond over bike riding or we just, we just really love each other. 
Nothing else can substitute for the sexual relationship that's at the heart of the marriage covenant. The having and the holding in, in traditional marriage vows, I think, are reflecting 1 Corinthians 7. Um, let each man have his own wife. Let each wife have her own husband. Um, in other words, that's a, that's a sexual having. And so it's a marital faithfulness is a sexual faith, faithfulness. So it's fundamentally a sexual union. And by the way, because it's a sexual union defined as a complementary union of a man and a woman, that's why it can't, you can't have same-sex unions. That's what I was going to drill down on. This definition of sexual or even our definition of sex, I think has slipped in our kind of the normal way that we use it in society. But sex inherently is complementary. complementary. Uh, there's a complementary element to sex such that other relations, we really shouldn't even be talking about those as sexual. So we're not talking about sexual in the way that the world use that, but, but a very technical teleological definition of sex. There's a fittedness between male and female that when they come together is described as sexual. Yeah. When, when we say sexual here, we're not, we're not using the term like the world often uses it, which is a vague term referring to any kind of erotic activity. Uh, that's not what's, that's not what we mean here. We're talking about the complementary union of a male and female body in the way that is um, has the potential to bring forth children. That's what we're talking about here, and that can only happen between a male and a female. Which brings us to our, our third uh, descriptor here, procreative. That's right. Now, it's what's important here about the language is, is that it's marriage is designed to be procreative. That's not to say that every union will be procreative. We live in a fallen world. And there are sometimes, sadly, things that happen that render couples infertile. E however, even in a fallen world, that doesn't erase the original design for marriage and for the marriage union, which was to be a procreative union. So well, where do we get that from? Well, we get that from Genesis as well. Because Genesis 1, in, um, where it says that God made them male and female, he gives them the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so from the very beginning, he has designed uh, the union of man and woman to be procreative in intent within this covenant of marriage. You say, well, what, what about the fall? The fall comes in, doesn't that sort of erase and change everything? Well, you might think that, except that when you read uh, the rest of Genesis, you see the command, the initial creation mandate repeated so that when Noah gets off of the ark, he, we hear it again. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. In other words, the creation mandate survives the fall and still applies. And so when we think about our sexuality and what marriage is, marriage is designed to be a procreative union. Um, even though in a fallen world, some people may not be able to achieve that, but because, sadly because of infertility, it's still designed to be that, which means it's it's one of the purposes for marriage that we should all embrace. It's one area where evangelicals haven't gotten a perfect scorecard on. Uh, and one of the critiques of the national statement was that uh, it was aimed at sort of the LGBT community and not introspective or or even looking at, you know, the um, the issues facing Christians and evangelicals. But here, procreative union that that has in view, uh, a critique of maybe an intentionally childless marriage, which is a, um, definitely a, certainly a feature of 21st century marriages and evangelicalism today. Yeah, when you look at the first article here of the Nashville Statement, it doesn't, even, it doesn't single out homosexuality or transgenderism because 
it the, really the foundation for what we believe when it comes to our sexual ethic is really defined by what we think marriage is. Because the Bible gives us a definition of marriage, first of all, just looking at Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And then when Jesus teaches on marriage in Matthew 19, he's quoting Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So the Bible gives us a definition of marriage, and then we understand immorality as any kind of sexual activity that happens outside of that marriage covenant. So you have to define it first. Um, You know, when you read Matthew 19... And the Pharisees are asking Jesus questions about the nature of marriage. Um, Jesus would said, you know, from the beginning it was not so. Because they said, they were arguing that, you know, Moses permits divorce. And, you know, we should be able to get divorces, basically. And Jesus says, well, from the beginning it was not so. so. Have you not read that in the beginning he created the male and female, and the two shall become one flesh? That's Jesus quoting Genesis 1 and 2 and saying, from the beginning, here's the nature of marriage. It was not designed for divorce. Are there going to be times when people get divorced in a fallen world? And sometimes, I would argue, this is a controversial topic all by itself, but sometimes I think that divorce is justified under certain biblical conditions. Yes, that's true, but that's not what it was designed for. And Jesus argued from design for permanence, that the marriage covenant is supposed to be permanent, which is really the, the, the next phrase there. Marriage is designed to be a lifelong union of one man and one woman which is you know, what God says, what God has joined together, what Jesus says in Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So one of the features of a covenantal view of marriage is that it's intended to be a permanent, lifelong union. So we're defining the standard, the norm, that is given by God's design here at the beginning, at the outset of the statement, and then that helps us to understand deviation or... Uh, or really issues of sin, missing the mark, and what's the mark? This is the mark, the affirmation in Article 1. Absolutely. So the first article addresses everybody. It's not, it's not singling out you know, gay people necessarily or transgender people. It's, it's really addressing everyone and saying, this is God's design for marriage. And if you fall short of this through unbiblical divorce, through you know, intentionally you know, spurning uh, children to your marital union, you just don't welcome children in at all. Um, you're, all of those kinds of activities would be brought under the um, indictment that this, this statement would bring. So you want to embrace all the purposes of marriage. You don't want to embrace just some of them. Before we get to the denial, that last phrase, it's meant to signify the covenant love. Marriage is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. That's how high the stakes are here. Oh, absolutely. And that's coming right out of Ephesians 5, right? Ephesians 5 quotes Genesis 2, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and so forth. And then it says, right after that, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. When Paul says that this is a mystery, he says marriage is a mystery, he's not saying it's currently mysterious. For Paul, a mystery was something that was once hidden in the Old Covenant, but now it's been revealed um, in the New Covenant. So a mystery is something that was once hidden, but now revealed. What do we know? Well, what Paul is saying is that from the beginning, this mystery is great, but from the beginning, actually, marriage was always meant to be a little enacted parable of Christ's love for his bride. You saw this in the Old Testament in that God's relationship to Israel was often um, depicted as a husband-wife relationship, but then you get 
this revelation in the New Testament of the church being the very bride of Christ. And so marriages are designed to demonstrate the way that Christ loves the church. That's why the stakes are so high, because every marriage that fails or that spurns these norms of marriage is a marriage that's distorting Christ's love for his church and the way that the church and Christ relate to one another. So yeah, the, 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 the stakes are really, really high. We often hear that marriage and family is a pre-political institution, but in that way, we understand that marriage and the family is foundational even uh, for our, our even understanding of the gospel. Now under the denial, uh, we deny, it says, that God has designed marriage to, a, to be a homosexual, polygamous, or polyamorous relationship. We also deny that marriage is a mere human contract rather than a covenant made before God. Yeah, so every bit of that denial is important because after the affirmation of what marriage is, we today we want to say what it's not because there are so many aberrations that are becoming more and more common in our culture, and it's it's helpful for the church to be able to say, look, this is what we are, this is what we, we aren't. If you're going to follow Christ, you have to understand that marriage cannot be a homosexual union. It's not possible for there to be a complementary covenanting, covenanted pair uh, between two people of the same sex because sec, um, the conjugal union is not possible between those two people. So it can't be homosexual. It can't be, it's not designed to be polygamous. Um, in the Old Testament, you do have examples of polygamy, but you don't have examples of the endorsement of polygamy. What you have is examples of polygamy where every time it happens, it comes up with all kinds of dysfunction and sexual problems. It's not something that's, that's commended. And at the very beginning, what was it like at the beginning? You had one man and one woman, not one man and, and, and lots, of, lots of women. And, and in fact, in, in Deuteronomy, what is it, Deuteronomy 18, where there's the law of the king, there's a command for the king not to multiply wives. And then, of course, by the time you get to the New Testament, it's, it's very, very clear you know, the elder is supposed to be the husband of one wife. So it's, 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 it's designed to be a monogamous relationship, not polygamous, or polyamorous. Some people say, well, what's the difference between polygamous and polyamorous? Well, polygamous is where you got one man with lots of wives. Polyamorous is where you've got any kind of configuration of men and women that are uh, three or more. So it can be two men with one woman, one woman with many men. It can polyamorous means you basically have open sexual relationships. That of course is ruled out by marriage, which is of course a one flesh union between one man and one woman. So um, all of those things would be ruled out by this statement. It's one of the problems with the the fiction, the legal fiction, and really moral fiction of gay marriage is there's an inherent logic to God's design: man, woman. It's binary. <clears throat> there's two. Uh, and that's why there, it's, a, it's a union of two individuals, a man and a woman. Uh, you, you lose the complementarity of marriage, and you lose that number. Why two? Why not three? Why not multiples? Uh, so getting back to God's design really helps us to put the guardrails up on the definition of marriage. Very good. Well, anything else to add, Denny, as we conclude Article 1? Well, the last thing here is that it says, We deny that marriage is a mere human contract rather than a covenant made before God. So... You know, you asked about a contract a while ago. We, we want to make sure that we're saying this is not a temporary, man-made, man-defined institution. This is a permanent, God-defined institution. And so when you enter into a marriage, this is a sacred thing. And we're also supposed to treat it as such. 
Resources like the CBMW podcast are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening.